in approaching Songs of Songs this way, there are people within our communities of faith that are speaking prophetically from their pain. And then when we listen to them, we can we actually can hear the voice of God. Welcome to When Women Preach. This podcast exists to empower AAPI and Latina women faith leaders. We have some brilliant women leaders here with us. Our guests for this episode are Gail Yi, Sophia Megayanis Singh, and of course, our founder and editor of the book, Young Lee Hertig. And they're all contributors to the book, A Biblical Study Guide for Equal Pulpits. This book was released just a few months ago, and you can buy it now using the link that's included in the bio. And our first guest is Dr. Gail Yi. She is an author of multiple books. She has written a number of articles and essays. She's also an editor and the former president of the Society of Biblical Literature. Our second guest is Dr. Sophia. She's currently an affiliate professor of the Old Testament at Fuller Seminary. And starting this fall, congratulations, she will be an assistant professor of biblical and theological studies at Fresno Pacific University. She also specializes in Hebrew wisdom literature and Old Testament studies. She's also an author of several articles, written chapters and books, currently writing a commentary in the book of Job. These two ladies are incredible and amazing. So we have a really, really good episode ahead of us. Without further ado, let's jump right in. I wanted to invite you, Young, if you can describe for us what you hope for with this book and what this book will address and how it can help shape the church moving forward. Well, thank you, Joanna. And thank you, Gail and Sophia, for making your time out of your busy schedule. We are honored to have both of you. This project, A Biblical Study Guide for Equal Pulpit, originated from Gender Summit 2. That was February 27, 2019. And the panel, Gail, Lee, and most of the authors were panelists at that time. And that pan those panels were just awesome and very well received. So uh, I thought about documenting it and publishing it. And I want to send special kudos to the Louisville Institute for granting us this under the banner of Imagining a More Equal Pulpit. And Gender Summit was part of it, and podcast was born out of the Louisville Institute grant. So I thank uh, Edwin Aponte, who is our ally for this project. And... Um, we hope to see more equal pulpit out of this biblical study guide and approaching it more biblically and hermeneutically through the lens of um, women of color would really help bringing equal pulpit. Pulpit is the core issue that we need to address. So I'm just super excited about this book, uh, and hopefully this book will land in every male pastors and female pastors. So that's our hope. Gail and Sophia, would you mind telling us why you decided to study biblical theology? We can start with Sophia. Thank you for asking. I had started uh, 
my academic journey in 1998 uh, at age 17, and I was a Christian ministries major. I had taken my first biblical studies course, and I switched my major to biblical studies because it gave me a freedom. It gave me a freedom to explore my Christian ministries classes, the theology and ministry courses were too confining for me. And I felt that biblical studies and uh, it just opened up new possibilities and I could ask all the questions that I wanted. But also I found out really soon that not all the, que- not all the questions that I was asking was going to be answered by the text. So that was actually exciting too, to um, change my perception of what the Bible is. And it actually opened up new avenues for me to interact with God. And, you know, um, so that's what got me started on biblical theology. Okay, first of all, I'm not sure if I would call myself a biblical theologian or, or, or what I do is biblical theology. I'm more a, a biblical uh, exegete and an interpreter. And that came from, uh, I was an English major in college, and I became an English major because I couldn't pass a math course for my pre-med. And uh, English was, you know, I, I fit right in in English so that when I applied to a um, theology department, biblical interpretation and biblical exegesis uh, was, was, a, was a slot for me. So mm-hmm. that's so that's where um that's where I I I belong. I mean, I don't I wouldn't consider myself a theologian, but more of a a, a exegete and interpreter of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Appreciated your uh interpretive lens of Book of Ruth, Gail, among all of it. It was just so fascinating. I actually read that last <laughs> quarter for one of my fuller classes. <laughs> but would you call it? Would you call it? Uh, would you call that theolo- theology, or would you call that biblical interpretation? Because for me, it's interpretation from an Asian American mm. perspective. And there's theological undercurrent as you interpret. Okay. That, yeah. Well, there's an embedded theology in the text mm-hmm. that she's identifying. So I guess in that way. I think that's a really good segue into the next question. Maybe, Dr. Gale, you can start us off um, with this was, what unique lens then do you approach the scriptures when you are approaching it in this way, when you are interpreting the text? Okay, because this thing is on on the pulpit, you have to realize that as a Roman, a former Roman Catholic, again, but Roman Catholicism is very much a part of who I am. I was never able to preach. I mean, because they didn't ordain women in mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church. And basically, what I did most of my life was criticize and critique the, the sermons I would hear. All right. So mm-hmm. um, I approached the text uh, more with a hermeneutic of suspicion. All right. Mm-hmm. I, um, uh, I see the sexism, the racism, the the homophobia, the colonialism, you know, I see that as a, um, through, through the lens of which, of which I approach the text. And again, that, that is going to affect how, how I read the text. Now, I, when we get to the, you know, my chapter, I can say something a little bit more about that because that chapter for me 
was not was not through the uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion, but it was it was this is one a uh, one time where I felt that I can go and explore the theology and why um, Psalms was very important to me. But basically, you know, I as an interpreter, I maybe it's because as a Roman Catholic, I am not bound by this is the actual word of God. And, you know, I'm not followed by any doctrinal commands uh, of obedience to the word. I, and so that's why I do see a dark underside often when I look at the biblical text. And and I, I know that of myself. So I really do want to see, be a little bit more theolo- theological, be, be a little bit more seeing, you know, the grace and, and the spirituality of it. But my, my, my usual interpretation is through a hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, Dr. Sophia, um, could you describe your unique lens and the approach that you bring? Well, I'm from the way other side of yeah. the spectrum. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I use uh, the tools that I acquire through my education, but my context um, has given me a different perspective. Like my starting point is believing that the Bible is the word of God. But for me, it's different in a Pentecostal Latino immigrant church. What that means is a lot broader than what they teach in seminary, where it's the testimony of the community of faith that becomes the word of God when you share it. Mm-hmm. And so for us, the idea of the Bible being the word of God, it doesn't have to be an errant mm-hmm. <laughs> in order for it to lend itself to the divine voice. And so I, the way that I've always approached scripture, even when I learned different critical theories and historical criticism, it, it didn't pose a threat to my faith because it's like, okay, you're going to see all of the the backside, the human side of that, you know, in Pentecostal settings, it, it's typical for testimonies to have the very human, very raw part of the testimony, especially with my parents. We, we, we were raised in a very, in the post-drugs, post, um, very, I, I don't know how to call it, uh, an inner city situation <laughs> where my parents were converts out of that kind of harsh lifestyle. And so I heard a lot of stuff as a kid that I should not have heard, <laughs> you know, when it comes to just the cruel realities of the world, um, you know, including, you know, I grew up really close to where the Rodney King baiting happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this, so in a black neighborhood, but it, and in an immigrant church, for us, church included very human, very dark <laughs> stories, but and yet having God breathe into those stories, that for me uh, gave me the doctrine of scripture that I, I worked with as I, as I approach scripture. And then later on, as I started interacting in academia, I started also learning about how broader Pentecostalism in Latin America um, tends to deal with the orthopathos of scripture of God. Uh, Basically, what are the parts of the scripture that lends itself to God uh, experiencing solidarity with those who are uh, 
under oppression. So that kind of, that informed the way I approached. Um, this is the first time I ever let myself approach scripture from this, in this particular way. I've been trying so hard to separate my context from my biblical studies work. And I guess that hasn't worked for me, but uh, I, I felt really good, Young. Thank you so much for letting me approach scripture for the first time with an overt uh, interaction or dialogue between my perspective. It's a great piece, Sophia. We're going to delve into that. But Joanna, did you have another question? Yes, but before we jump into that question, I did have a comment because I can see the thread um, of similarity between you and Gail, because I remember Gail in your chapter, you talk about lamentations and how oppression and marginalization and how important it is to have that as a part mm -hmm. of your faith. Um, and so in that sense, I can see there being this connection between the two of you and how you approached your perspective, your uh, individual chapters. Dr. Gale, can you just uh, start us by sharing with us what your chapter is about and just expanding on on that? Well, this chapter, and I thank you, uh, Young, for inviting me because it completely went against or what I usually do in my own biblical studies. Um, and if, if there's anything that I did not do a hermeneutical suspicion on, but really found grace and uh, beauty and spirituality, it was in the Psalms. I mean, Psalms, as I mentioned in my chapter, oh, has been very much a part of my life. I mean, this is the way I pray. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, you might not think, you know, because I'm, you know, I use hermeneutics and suspicion. I don't have any prayer life, nor am I, you know, but it, I definitely pray the scriptures a lot, primarily because they touch every emotion mm -hmm. a human being can feel. All right. And as a Roman Catholic, it's part of, it's part of my Roman Catholicism. You know, I, I mean, the, uh, the media, the monastics, both convents and of uh, priories, pray the psalms and go through the all 150 psalms for the whole year, mm -hmm. right? And it, as I mentioned in my chapter, I mean, the Eucharist is, is where my spiritual life is, mm -hmm. all right? The Eucharist, you know, in the Word of God section, uh, have the Old Testament reading, the psalm response the New Testament reading, and then the gospel reading. So that uh, that uh, psalm response to the Hebrew Bible is very much part of uh, of the Eucharistic celebration. And I, I, I think um, I even mentioned this in my chapter. I often, like I say, criticize, critique uh, uh, sermons, all right? And particularly, even in, in Roman Catholicism, I mean, well, now I'm Episcopalian, but so even in, in the Episcopal Church, they would go directly to uh, the gospel to preach on, mm -hmm. all right? And they are leaving out, I mean, I do remember confronting my, my rector, I mean, the, the, in the lectionary, uh, the lectionary had the David of Bathsheba story, you know, mm -hmm. Why are you leaving that very important thing out? And then the response to it is David's um, psalm, and I think uh, uh, Psalm 2, I think, is, all right? The psalms for me 
is very important for my own spirituality. It kind of is a corrective to my hermeneutical suspicion. And as you say, I can see how it can be used, you know, uh, for women's issues. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, especially I, I interpreted that one psalm in light of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there for me that is very spiritually uplifting and, as I said, a corrective of my hermeneutics of suspicion. I think, Gail, you have more than Roman Catholicism. There's another thread between Sophia and Gail. One time she told me that she was slain in the spirit. There is oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh no no! I was a Pentecostal. I was a well, all right. I was a Catholic charismatic <laughs> from like 1973 to um, 87. Mm -hmm. I I I organized a conference of um, Catholic charismatics in Toronto. We had five thousand people. Wow! You know, I have I have uh, definitely spoken in tongues, and I still kind of you know, uh, get into it sometimes, you know, when I don't have the words to pray. So I uh, I used to stick Jesus Loves You stickers, you know, in, on Rush Street when, you know, when I had all these prostitutes on, on, on the Johns that would come in. So there, that is a very much a part of my, I had, I was baptized in the spirit, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I became a Catholic charismatic and was very much a part of my, mm -hmm. my own spirituality until you know, I was in one of those covenant households, and um, uh, the, quote, head of the household, who, of course, is male, did not like me, you know, getting a master's or a doctorate. So I, of course, left that covenant household, but I did not uh, leave um, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal because that is where, and I don't regret it because um, that's where I encountered, uh, had a personal relationship with Jesus. So that's, that is very much a part of my life too. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yes. and we, I see you, and I see that kind of spirituality that you exude, and I feel it. So oh, you're okay. not like this uh, very sterile scholar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> embodied spirit that really mm -hmm. is refreshing, Gail. How about you, Sophia? I mean, her treatment of Song of Solomon is just exceptional who would have ever thought that yeah this is a prophetic voice coming out of erotic literature yes i definitely took a i walked out on a limb because that basically songs of songs has been troubling for me most of my life i've had a lot of trouble with songs of songs i remember as a young person reading hind's feet for hiding high places and trying to figure out how can this book kind of benefit my spiritual life? Things like that. Uh, just because, you know, it's a wrong orientation to have towards scriptures. Like, oh, it's utilitarian. How does it suit me? But pretty much like, you know, I guess that's the backlash of being a part of kind of these communities is that's that question of how can I apply this to my life? How can I make it useful in my journey of faith? Well, sometimes maybe scripture, there's parts of scripture that is not <laughs> or mm -hmm. very edifying, but um, particularly about four, 14, 15 plus years back in seminary, uh, I remember having a conversation with a student 
another student. I was a TA of a course, and then he asked me, how would you approach Songs of Songs? And I said, at first I was thinking, like, why would you ask me that? You know? <laughs> and then suddenly... Uh, it's coming on to you. Yeah. I was like, oh, that would be a good I didn't even think about that. That's weird. <laughs> I guess it's a really Christian way of doing it. A real pickup line. <laughs> what do you think of the song? Well, my response was probably not what he wanted either because I was just like, ah, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, in particular, like, why is the female beloved being beaten down in the street? Like, that was my question. It was like, I don't know what to do with it, especially this part. This is really troubling. And no matter how many times I, I, I've read different approaches and different kind of more things that lend themselves to allegorical readings of the text, I wasn't satisfied with it. And then I, you know, basically for the past 15 years, I kind of had a sneaking suspicion that there might be a chance to do a gender reversal with uh, that basically the association with Solomon and the wisdom tradition, if there is one now, we don't know if there's a unified one yet or, or if there ever was, but if the association to Solomonic wisdom was that maybe, just maybe, this figure is kind of like a wisdom figure who does have a one-night stand with this king and what would happen if we actually read it that way there are different reasons for that one of them is i i the repeated refrain i read it as a warning you know to not awaken love before it's time uh i am my beloved and he is mine and then at the end i am my beloved i mean my beloved is mine and i am his desire or you can say but i am his desire and then also the description of the wedding in the middle of the Songs of Songs. I always thought it sounds like she's describing somebody else's wedding from the outside in. So all of these things for the past, you know, decade and a half have been ruminating underneath. And so I just asked the question when uh, Young asked us, what would you write about? And I was just thinking... There's a high concentration of the female voice in Songs of a Song. Why would the person do that? And then I had, I had read some queer readings of, of the text about how basically the author was speak or writing in drag. You know, I, I had read a lot about it and I just, I wanted to figure out for myself, why is the female voice used so much throughout the biblical text and can it lend itself to God speaking and what would God speak through that female voice and so those are the questions that I was asking and I was really excited about really putting it to the test and asking those questions and for me I found some answers for myself that are satisfying for myself at least for now. There is a quote that you said, uh, when one reads scripture in community and in solidarity with the poor and marginalized, it opens us up to the testimony of scripture that reveals the divine pathos concerning the disenfranchised. And I thought that was so powerful um, in your treatment of the biblical text. And especially the Shulamite, am I pronouncing correct? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I still resonated mm-hmm. with that part. Yeah. I was drawing from Sullivan and different places, but um, in reality, part of the story is it's all about status. What made me really sensitive to that is, you know, within my own family and the questionable status of, you know, my parent, well, one of my parents, and then the other parent, you know, she didn't cross the border, but the border crossed her. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and there's this feeling of displacement of not being either from here or there, ni de allá, ni aquí. You know, you're right in the middle. And the way that society treats you sometimes is like, you know, on my mom's side of the family, we've been here for at least five generations, mm-hmm. you know, in New Mexico as mestizos there. And then also, you know, questionable status of my father when he did cross over undocumented. So that coupled with going down to Mexico every month from the time I was eight years old until the time I was 18 and seeing the poverty there. And I, ha- I think I, ha- I was blessed and I hate using that term, but I've, I think it is a blessing that my father, he instilled in us a value of actually going and live living alongside people where they're at. When he we were when I was eight years old, I remember him taking my whole family down to Mexico and saying, "You know what? You need to experience what I experienced mm-hmm. as a child. This is Christmas for me." And we went down for Christmas Day. My dad grew up in a family of twelve brothers and sisters in Juarez. He's like, this is how I, we went down to Tijuana and even though we didn't go to Juarez, he he made sure he's like, this is how I experienced Christmas. And this is how people experience Christmas from that moment on. And then going there once a month, every single month, it does something to you when you're a Mm -hmm. child Mm -hmm. where you can't read Mm -hmm. the Bible in the same way. You can't sing the same Mm -hmm. songs. You can't quote the same scriptures in the Mm -hmm. same way. So. Thank God for that blessing that my parents was it they were able to connect me to not only my heritage but also the greater community. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. The final question I have is starting with Dr. Gale, if you can just share with us your heart of if this is the thing I want you to take away, what what is it? Well, I guess the first thing, I mean, again, I'm not sure about other religious denominations. I mean, as I said, in Roman Catholicism, the Psalms are very much a part of their prayer life. And if anything, I want um, my readers to take away is to look upon the Psalms as prayer and to join in with the thousands of of people who over several thousand years have prayed these Psalms. I mean, they they are gender neutral. You know, you can read your own story, read your own concerns, read your own problems into some of the songs. And you can also read your own Thanksgiving. I mean, if you, I mean, there, there are such, um, songs of Thanksgiving and rejoicing <laughs> of what God has done for the people and for uh, the reader. That I mean, I want people to to realize that you know. Um, so if, if there's anything, it, it's just to get in touch with if if the, if the psalms have not been part of your prayer life, mm-hmm. 
to to use those psalms as prayer. Because you'll be joining with many people who have. Okay. Yeah, so. and especially during pandemic and ongoing, yeah. you know, moment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how painful it was for people not to be able to lament collectively mm -hmm. when loved yeah. one passed on. So yeah. the theme that you touched upon in your chapter, lament and hope, mm -hmm. uh, they are two sides of one coin. And it's even more than ever, I think Psalms must be preached and prayed. Well, then also, you know, that, that we can actually complain to God. That's you right. know, I mean, you know, that, you know, I mean, we're, we are demanding God to hear us. Right. You know, I mean, we're, we are praying in imperatives and we want God to do mm -hmm. something about right. what we pray about. Now, we might not like what we, God does, but, you know, um, this is what the prayers do, the psalms do. It's okay to yell at God, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I do. Well, well, to be angry at God yeah. and, and, and demand God to mm -hmm. deal with the situation. Yeah, and God to show mm -hmm. up. Yeah. What you said about, I'm just going to read this part, is you said, without the laments, how can we raise legitimate <laughs> questions of social and mm -hmm. economic justice without the laments? How can we speak truth to power if on the one hand we are voiceless and on the other, the only thing we can express is joy and praise? Oh, and I also wanted to say that I, I thought even you naming the gender neutral language, yes. it's something I never <laughs> noticed you know, before, but it really transforms, I think, the reading of the mm -hmm. text when you can, when you even have that in your mm -hmm. mind and that that perspective. So thank you for naming that. Um, Dr. Sophia, could you share with us if there's one thing that people take away, what would it be? That there is a template within scripture that allows for us to listen for God's voice among the marginalized and um, among the most unlikely of people. You know, it you know, in approaching Songs of Songs this way, I hope it opens up the possibility that there are people within our communities of faith and also just in our com communities at large that are speaking prophetically from their pain, but also God in his experiences a solidarity with them. Mm -hmm. And then when we listen to them, we can we actually can hear the voice of God in order and, and to you know asking us to address those issues. That is powerful. So empowering, prophetic voice coming out of the margin and by the marginalized woman. Wow. What an honor it is. And making imagination a reality. And we are hoping that we would, this book would impact Christianity as it is and move it to as it should be. If you'd like to support Isaac in producing this podcast or our overall mission of supporting AAPI and Latina women ministers, you can donate to Isaac at isaacweb.org.